Hi, it's Dr. Megan Lertz, probably not the voice you were expecting to hear. I am the senior research nerd with Kitsis.com and our team expert on financial psychology. I'm not in this episode, but I have a quick share. At the Kitsis.com platform, we value origin stories. Origin stories matter to how financial planning happens. In today's episode, we're going to hear from Brenda and about her origin story and how it matters to her practice. Brenda's story gets into some challenging topics like homelessness and addiction, which might be difficult for some audiences. If listening in your car with littles or at work in earshot of coworkers, we hope you continue to hear this powerful story, but consider some earbuds. Additionally, if you or someone you know is affected by homelessness or addiction, you can find some helpful resources in the show notes for this episode at kitsis.com slash 325. Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 325th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Brenda Hiscock. Brenda is a financial planner with Objective Financial Partners, an advice-only advisory firm based in Ontario, Canada, that works with clients on project-based financial plans and also offers outsourced PR planning to other Canadian advisory firms. What's unique about Brenda, though, is how she not only came to the financial services industry without any financial background, but did so despite a very financially challenging upbringing and while navigating challenges of homelessness, bankruptcy, and alcoholism in her 20s, through which she not only persevered and rose through the ranks as a financial advisor, but has been able to leverage those real-world experiences and challenges to provide an even deeper and more meaningful level of engagement with current clients and how their financial past can impact their financial behaviors in the present and future as well. In this episode, we talk in depth about how while Brenda was still in high school, Her mother died suddenly, and she was left with the responsibility of caring for a younger sibling, which created such a large financial burden that Brenda couldn't handle despite working two jobs and eventually led to her becoming homeless and beginning a cycle of alcohol addiction as a coping mechanism. How Brenda learned after her early struggle with alcoholism and two failed stints in rehab before finally getting sober 19 years ago that being able to work from home with a flexible schedule wasn't just a nice-to-have for work-life balance, but essential for her to have the space she needed for her mental health. And how Brenda's perspectives on financial planning and especially the benefits of insurance were so deeply shaped by both her financial struggles as a teenager after her mother died without life insurance, and then her financial stability after disability insurance kept her from falling back into homelessness when she was diagnosed with cancer just a year after getting sober and had to take a whole year off from work to get the care she needed. We also talk about how when Brenda realized that she would have to take care of her younger sibling, she asked for help and her high school placed her in a cooperative education program that got her a job as a teller at a credit union and began her journey in the financial service industry. How later in her career, Brenda began a job in insurance because she knew how important having insurance can be, but ultimately found that having firsthand experience in the benefit of insurance didn't necessarily make it any easier to sell insurance and prospect for new clients. And how Brenda's effort to find the right position for herself in the financial service industry ultimately led to financial planning, where she realized that she could have a greater impact in the lives of clients as she could use all of her personal experiences and life lessons to educate them on how to properly handle their finances and break through their emotional issues with money. And be certain to listen to the end, 
where Brenda shares how she found she enjoys financial planning because she can combine her intuitive math skills with her love of working with people and educating and just having deep conversations that can impact future of clients' lives. How Brenda is continually working on making peace with the struggles that she has endured through her life but feels that they were necessary to get her to where she is today and become a living life lesson to others and the importance of having insurance, support from others, and a good financial plan of your own. And why Brenda believes it's so important for younger, newer advisors to not only find mentors, but be ready to proactively ask their mentors for help in achieving their career goals to ensure they get the support and wisdom they want and need. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Brenda Hiscock. Welcome, Brenda Hiscock, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. I really appreciate you joining us today to to have what I, I think is going to be a really powerful conversation around the the paths that we we sometimes take sort of in into the industry and 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 through the industry and and how we get here. Uh, you know, I, I find there's a phenomenon in the advisor world that I find a little bit from the industry and both from consumers. There, there's sort of this sometimes latent expectation. Uh, if you're a financial advisor who works with money, you must have you must have come from money. Like you must have some money background, at least in your schooling, if not in your in your home life and upbringing. And Absolutely. and to some extent, to some extent, I think that was amplified by the industry itself that for many years literally tried to recruit people who came from money, who came from affluent zip codes, because in the sales-based roots of the industry, if you grew up around money and your parents had friends with a lot of money, then when you started out in the industry, you could go like get your friends and family and bring them in and they would have money and you would be able to sell them stuff or collect assets or do something to grow the business. So in a, in a sales-oriented context, recruiting people from fairly affluent zip codes was essentially a, a marketing and growth strategy for a lot of advisory firms. We've yeah, taken some steps like away from that i think but there's still this phenomenon that uh i don't know like an expectation or a tendency of of view that advisors must have money backgrounds to be in the money business and i and i know you've lived a very a very different journey than that and so just i'm i'm looking forward to talking about you know just i think a broader understanding of what what brings people to the financial advice business Sounds great. So as we get started in the discussion, would would love to just hear some of your story of what brought you to the financial services industry and what, what this journey has been for you. Well, I actually started fresh out of high, I was in high school, actually, I was in a co-op program in grade 12. And I had a situation where I was responsible financially for my family. And so my school was able to find me a placement that was a paying placement. And it was in a credit union. And so I went and did a co-op program there. And I really enjoyed it. And the woman there, Jackie, my manager, she really became a mentor for me and really believed in me. So so help me understand a little bit more of the circumstances. I think you said you were financially responsible for your family coming out of high school, which is a fairly young age for a lot of us to be financially responsible for family. Yeah. Um, well, my mother, I, I, I was 
raised by a single mother of four children. And when I was 12 years old, she had a massive stroke and was in the hospital for 18 months and ultimately passed away when I was 14. I had an older brother and sister who, for their own reasons, my, my older sister had to move away when I was about 17 and my brother was in school and so I was responsible for the uh, the family and my younger sister and so um, I was having to look after the finances for my family and so I had that job and I worked full-time in the evenings at a uh, golf club as a waitress and all this is all through your teenage years in the middle of high school this was in grade 12 um and and probably the year after that I continued to to do that so so then what was the journey of how you ended out in in the credit union well that was the <clears throat> cooperative education placement that they put me in and it turned out to be a fantastic fit I was working at the workers compensation board credit union and the manager there really took me under her wing. She ended up hiring me at the end of the program and kept promoting me. And when I was about, I think, 19, 18 or 19 years old, she actually had me flying all over Ontario and giving speeches about the credit union. And I'd walk off the plane and the people would be absolutely shocked at this little girl because I was super tiny. I was 18 years old. And there I was to give these speeches to all of the workers' compensation board offices. And that sort of got me started on public speaking which is is probably my first love so so what was the i guess like what was the nature of the role when you were hired in just like what was the credit union hiring for at the high school level um, I was a customer service rep. Back then, we called it a teller. So I was serving the customers, doing the deposits and withdrawals. Okay. But I stayed there for a few years and got promoted to a marketing manager and did different roles within that that credit union. So, so then what was the evolution from there to uh, you know, ultimately get in the direction of financial advisor business? After I had my my son, um, I think that uh, I, I stayed home for a little while and then I went back to another credit union. I felt that at the credit union, I worked my way up to a branch manager at a credit union and I didn't really see anywhere else in the credit union system that I was interested in going. And I felt that the banks were a, a bigger platform for me to go into. So I actually took a step back by going into the banks uh, bank and, and went down from being a manager at a credit union to a personal banker at the CIBC and then worked my way up to being a manager there. Oh, interesting. So, so from the credit union perspective, I'm going to presume just, you know, little bit of a smaller organization overall, only so many branches, only so much, I guess, home, home office infrastructure. So yes. you get up to the, the, uh, the branch manager level and look around, I guess, like the only jobs left are corporate home office kinds of things that weren't appealing to you at that point. That's exactly correct. So what, what was it you were look like looking for or wanted to do or would would have wanted to see as next steps 
I think I saw myself initially as managing people and being a manager. And and that was the direction I really saw myself heading into. And then what happened was um, along the way in my career, I had also done some in-house training programs and things like that. And I really enjoyed it. And quite frankly, being a branch manager at the bank taught me that that wasn't meant for me. And so- I then got cancer, and when I was ready to return to work after cancer, I decided to go in another direction. And I went to insurance for a very good reason. When and what was that? um, When my mother died when I was 14, she had no life insurance. And so as a result, I had no opportunity for post-secondary education for my sister and myself. We ended up getting evicted. Uh, from our home when I was 18. And that was probably the thing that had the most profound impact of me on me on my whole life. And so um, that was, those were very challenging events. And so that was underway, like, as you're getting going at the credit union and and while I was at the credit union, actually, I got a phone call that all the things were being removed from my home when I had made arrangements with the people. It was I was living in Metro Housing and I had made arrangements with the people to um, delay my eviction. I had, my father was going to send money to, to cover it and um, they didn't follow through on that promise and they went ahead with the eviction anyways. And so because I had the rug pulled out from under me, it has taken so much time to be able to build up the ability to feel any trust yeah i i can imagine that i mean awful for anyone at any age but going through that at 18 like just there's you know and had my mother an 18 year old had my mother had life insurance my entire life would be different i would have been able to have paid rent every month i would not have had to have worked two jobs for three years, I wouldn't have had, we wouldn't have been evicted. I would have been able to go to university. I I just can't stress enough how important life insurance is. And on the flip side of that, when I got cancer, I had insurance and I, all my bills were paid for me while I was off sick. And so those two conflicting lessons made me very interested in moving towards insurance. So I want to come back to the insurance side, but but take me back a little bit more for a moment on the banking side and just the, the, the credit union to banking end. And I was struck in particular that you said like you were you were so interested in making a transition that you you went from a manager at the credit union to private banker on the bank side, which which it sounds like technically was a, a step back in the in the hierarchy and in the comp structure to get to move forward again. So, well, like, how how do you navigate that kind of taking step back to 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 take step forward? Since there's often like some very real financial consequences and dynamics to doing that. Um, well, to be really really frank with you, I was having um, problems with addiction at the time, and the personal banker role. Um, I did want to move to a bigger environment, but also the personal banker role was easier to manage with the problems that I was trying to work with behind the scenes personally. So was that in 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 coping with addiction itself or because you were trying to like go in a direction of therapy and something in that direction and needed a job that was more accommodating around it? 
Well, I think I really was trying to accomplish two things. I knew I wanted to work into a, a, a bigger environment. I wanted to be able to control my drinking. Um, and so I felt if I took a step back, I could get my drinking under control, also be in the environment where I wanted my future to spring from and 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 go from there. So what was it about the shift that was of interest to help get drinking under under control? Just that there would be less responsibility from being a branch manager at the credit union to being a personal banker at the bank. So all the all the all the pressure of the role and the leadership and the management not not conducive when you're trying to trying to manage to to addiction. But what ended up happening is I I continued at the bank and ended up being promoted to a branch manager there. <laughs> so. Out of, out of the frying pan into the fire, I think is the saying. So yeah, and that's really where where things exploded in the end, and and that's where um, I, I I had to get help. So so how did how did you navigate that in a industry context and a work context? I did. I never ever disclosed anything to my employers about that particular problem, um, but we had an EAP program. Um, employee assistance program where I was able to, they assisted me in getting me into rehab. Okay. And so, so how does that work relative to the, the work environment? Was this like you had to take time out of work to go, to go like into a full-time live-in rehab facility? Was this part-time running in parallel? I ended up off for 18 months and I never went back to the bank after that. That's when I went to insurance. So I was off for 18 months. I did two failed stints in rehab about three or four months after the second time. I ultimately was able to stop um, and went to AA and got help there. And that's when I made the decision that I wanted to move into insurance. Okay. And then you said somewhere along this journey, uh, cancer showed up? So then I moved into the insurance business and I got a fantastic job at Freedom 55 as a training manager. So I was training all of their new advisors how to be how to be advisors. And it was just a dream job for me. And almost as soon as I started working there, I was diagnosed with cancer. In fact, I was diagnosed with cancer on the one year anniversary that I stopped drinking. And so that's almost 19 years now. Um, and so I was diagnosed with cancer almost as soon as I started working there. And I was gone for a year. And luckily, oh, yeah. I had disability insurance and, and in that situation, which was really helpful. And that really reinforced what I was doing. So what can I ask what kind of cancer was it? I had breast cancer. Okay. And so... You were out for a full year uh, of chemo and radiation and whatever else has to go on to to get through uh, to get through cancer treatment before you can come back to work. Yes. So, how do you handle this with a like new job where you have to tell them, "Hey, like I'm so enjoying the new job, but I have cancer and have to go away for a while." Actually, the the bigger thing that I had to tell them even earlier on was that I had gone bankrupt because when I had um, got got sober, I was in terrible, terrible financial straits. And so I had to go bankrupt and they still 
um, were willing to take me on and do the special compliance that had to be done with my licenses. I had my life insurance and and um, mutual funds license. And so they had to do the proper reporting for that. And so they really stood behind me with that. Three months later, I'm diagnosed with cancer. They still stood behind me and held my job for me. And then finally, a year later, I was really able to go back and do that job. Wow. That's Oh, that's a lot coming at you. Yeah. And, and that job was, I was the training manager for, I think, a little over a year. And then I got promoted there to the director, to being a director of advisor development. So I would, I would uh, recruit and train new advisors. And the thing you said about seeking out advisors in those high, high wealth postal codes is, is 100% true. So, so what's it like for you? At this point, like go, going through these jobs in the industry where like it it sounds like work tends to go pretty well for you when you're when you're in and going with the flow. Like you're you a lot of these roles lead to promotions relatively expeditiously for you into into management and leadership positions. But then these challenges are still there along the way of coping with drinking and coping with cancer and coping with bankruptcy and all these pieces that keep knocking you back along the way. So I guess as I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to understand and visualize, like how, how do you keep moving forward through that environment when all this stuff keeps knocking you back? Well, I mean, these things have been a big challenge for sure. And it's taken, I'm still in the process of overcoming, you know, I think we spend our lives overcoming things. But at the same time, what I've decided to use all of these situations for is to, it really helped me to understand how much our emotions and our thoughts affect our behaviors around money. Because uh, because of all that I have been through myself, because I had the rug ripped out under from me and lost my home, I'm 57 years old. I only bought my own home, I think it's almost two years ago now, for the first time. I had every excuse in the world why I couldn't buy a house. But the reason I wouldn't buy it is because ultimately I was scared that they were going to take it away from me. And up until the closing day, it was a really, really terrible emotional time for me. And it it actually brought back all of those old feelings and made me realize that that thing that happened when I was 17 actually is still interfering with my life. So help us understand more just like like where like how does this fear show up around like just you wouldn't you didn't want to go buy a home you wouldn't go down the journey of even looking at a at a house like i i just always it was always something like i was not going to be a homeowner and i i am a middle of the road investor and i know that numerically it makes sense to be a homeowner but i always had reasons for it like i i just don't want that responsibility i don't want this i didn't even realize myself that i was lying to myself hmm. but really it and so these things that are in the background i i find that people who grow up in in poverty either do things to ensure they stay in poverty or oversave so much that they can't spend anything so what what ultimately has started to shift this cycle for you that you you got to the point you were ready and willing to buy a house 
Um, I, I think it's just been an evolution, really, of, of just really slowly coming to terms with, with everything uh, about myself and, and, and really trying to dig a little deeper into why, you know, uh, why I do some of the things I do when I, I, it doesn't make sense. And, you know, it's, it's because so many times our emotions behind things are, are affecting what we're doing subconsciously. So does that show up in conversations you have with with clients now i mean not necessarily your your backstory but like the that dynamic and that realization yeah not my backstory but certainly um i talk to my clients all of my clients about emotions around money i want to know how they feel about money is it a good thing is it a bad thing how was it talked about growing up you know what what experiences have they had you know are they are they investing because what their friends say and you know it it really sort of going through all the different their beliefs around money and so that we can understand where they might get in the way of the plan that looks so great on paper so is that literally some of the questions that you ask like is money a good or a bad thing to you? How was money talked about when you were growing up? Or yes, they- yes, and and you know what? It, do you do you find that you overspend? Do you underspend? Um, do you do you self sabotage? Do you sometimes do things that you can't understand why you do them? And so then, because if people spend irrationally and they keep doing it all the time, then they probably need therapy before they can actually deal with the financial plan in some cases. So how do you open up these conversations with clients? Because just that's some that's some weighty conversation to have with the client in what may be very early on in a a, a planning relationship. Right in my introductory call, um, I really, I sort of introduced the idea that, you know, we'll talk a little bit about your thoughts and your beliefs around money so that I can better understand how those may enhance or get in the way of the plan so that we can talk about ways to deal with those potential barriers or benefits. Interesting. And so they know, they know coming in that this is going to be part of the conversation. Yes. And quite frankly, there's some people we go deep and there's some people that we don't. I have to sort of assess their willingness and readiness for it as well. Okay. Because I was going to ask, do you get clients who are like, no, Brenda, like I'm just here to get advice on my money. Yeah. And there's down this conversational road. There's people who who I've never actually had that like much of a direct no to to any of it. Um, but I think that there's people, I f- think I'm a pretty good reader of people and I can sense how deep I can go depending on the person. And it's been something that just in the last two or three years has just become more and more important to me. And I'm a bigger and bigger part of my planning. And is there like uh, systems or tools or trainings that you've been through in in doing this or are these just questions and conversations that you've you've found from experience and from having lived a version of this journey yourself I've done a lot of research on online and also there's a program through FP Canada that I'm going to be taking called the 3H program and it it really talks about the um the sort of um 
the the emotional part of of money and so i think that that's i i see that the industry is trending in the right direction and i'm seeing a lot of financial therapists and things like that and i don't aspire to to do that i i really enjoy what i do with the financial planning but i do like to build in some of what i think is really key to the success of a plan and that's you know how we think about money and the ways that we might get in our own way so can you distinguish those for me a little more from your end? What's the difference between <clears throat> doing financial therapy and staying on the financial planning side, but bringing, bringing some of these conversations and dynamics in? I think a financial therapist isn't so much running projections as um, they're speaking to someone who's having financial challenges and talking through the whys about why they're having those challenges and digging really deeply into that and sort of getting to the root causes. Whereas I'm sort of introducing it and, and just sort of, you know, talking in a more general way about things. Okay. So, so now take us back to this journey that you were on. You come to Freedom 55, teaching, training, advisors, cancer comes along, spend a year battling, getting through victorious over cancer. You come back to work, uh, get promoted into director of advisor development to recruit and retain advisors. So so what what comes next on the journey? Um, I, I actually ended up meeting a family um, that had their own business, a father and two sons, and they, um, they were looking for someone to look after a little book of business. And so I thought I would like to try selling, being an insurance salesperson. And so I went and worked with that family and I tried that for couple of years, but it wasn't for me. I then still remained working with that family for a number of years and became their in-house planner. And they had expanded to about six advisors. And so I did all the in-house planning for their clients. All right. So tell, so tell me more about this evolution then. So, so you went to the firm to get deeper on the insurance side. So I guess you'd been You'd been training it at Freedom 55 and said, okay, I want to go in and do this firsthand at the new firm. I, I felt like that because of my experience with, you know, having no insurance when my mother died and having insurance when I had cancer and how strongly I believed in it, I thought that I could transition that into a sales practice. But I discovered that that just isn't, I, I'm, that that's not who I am. So, when that part didn't work out, um, the owner of the company had said that he wanted to start to do some planning for his clients, some retirement planning. And so we actually hired Jason Heath, who is who I now work for. And he did a couple of plans for us. And I really liked the process. And I delivered the plan that Jason had created for, for our client. And I asked if I could do that. And so they created a job for me where I was an in-house planner for them for a number of years. So I want to, I want to come back to the the evolution of the planning side a moment, but I'm just curious, like what, what, what wasn't working for you about going out on the insurance end with just like the, the passion and, and like life story and firsthand experience perspective you have on the, the importance and value of, of insurance? I think I was challenged by the prospecting. 
I think that that's, I think that's a skill that is, you know, so, so very important yeah. and one that's just not my strength. So the, the having the conversations about insurance, fine, finding the people to get in front of to have the conversation about insurance, not so good. Exactly. So, so the firm decides we want to be doing more on the uh, financial planning side with this growing number of retiring clients. And so now help me understand, like, what did they do initially? Like, I think they, they hired Jason Heath to do plans for us, but like who, Who's Jason Heath relative to the firm? And like, Jason what, what Heath is the, is the owner of the company that I currently work for. So he does okay. unbiased financial planning. And we also do white label planning for advisors. So advisors can hire us to make plans for their clients and they can put their own logos on them. And so we hired Jason to do a couple of white label plans for our clients. And I really liked the what he did and I liked delivering the plan. And so I talked to the um, company that I was with about becoming an in-house planner. And so they decided to do that. So how is that transition from being being on the insurance sales and prospecting side to moving to a more, I guess, functionally at that point, like internal role as the in-house planner? Well, that was something that I wanted. So I still had, you know, I was still servicing the clients that I had had brought on and dealing with that. But my main my main role became the in-house planner. Okay. I I wanted to get away from from doing the sales. I didn't I felt that it wasn't for me and I wanted to um sort of go back to I think ultimately my my biggest talent is is educating and so financial planning you're educating maybe it's an audience of one maybe it's an audience of a thousand but i really like to break down complex things into simple pieces and i think that that's very helpful when you're delivering that type of information to people so so how did the role work within the within the firm just like what was what was the structure of the role to say you were there in in-house planner? So there were six advisors and they would identify a, cl a client who they wanted to do a financial plan for. So I would attend the fact-finding meeting and I would gather the information for the plan and then I would create the plan and then we would have a meeting with a big screen and I would deliver the plan and then I would help them with the implementation of it. Interesting. So, so there's essentially two two advisor folks in the room, whoever it was that brought the client in originally, I guess nominally was more focused on the insurance side since the firm was doing insurance business. We and also then, did investments as well. Okay. And then, and, but they're, I guess at that point, like the advisor is mostly focused on specifically the insurance and investment products and implementation. If the client wants a plan that's act that actually doesn't come from that advisor. That came from you all the way well, through. Like you're doing fact finding, plan construction, plan delivery. Right. And we made it like kind of a big deal. Like we would have like food for them at the presentation and it was like a, a free service for them, but it was we we really built it up as a as a, a very big add-on. And so, you know, they would typically be looking at you know, maybe they're selling an insurance policy. So I'm going to model the insurance policy into the overall plan just to show them how it all plays out. 
so sort of bringing their 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 proposals to life so i guess i'm i, I i'm struck just because for a lot of advisory firms they still ultimately ha- have it set up where the advisor who who's the primary on the relationship is the one that uh delivers the plan and if there's in-house support it tends to be more behind the scenes and construct the plan and and create the deliverable but not necessarily do the delivery so i guess i'm just curious like what what was it like for you going through this process of fact finding plan construction plan delivery for someone that like wasn't originally your client and wasn't necessarily going to continue as your client cuz at some point i assume it goes back to the original advisor but you're you know you're you're in with them for this financial plan journey stage. Yeah, really, that's the only stage that I'm really a part of. And then I'm sort of, you know, working with the advisor to, to, you know, clarify the implementation portion. But really, my job was to just be delivering the plans and showing how if they implemented what the advisor suggested, how it would all play out financially for them. And so they they saw it, they saw having me there as sort of like a bonus, like we've got this expert who comes in and focuses just on this element of things. And that was how they presented it to the clients. So is it hard to get up to speed that quickly on a client to just do and deliver the plan when you're coming into a relationship that's already ongoing with the firm, but new to you and you have to get up to speed really quickly? Well, no, not really, because when you're fact finding, you're really just gathering what you're going to be using as assumptions that you're going to put into software and build a plan from it. So same with what I'm doing now, I'm gathering a fact finder and some investment statements, and then I'm creating assumptions out of that. So it really the fact finding the discovery process was to gather what assumptions that I would be using in the plan and then presenting those assumptions to the client. And and so... Uh, the firm didn't charge separately for this. This was a this was a free service included in for valuable clients that they wanted to do more and deeper work with, presumably. But there, there's no separate fee charge for plans in in this environment. Right. It, it was just ba- it was baked in. Okay. And did you say even they're like laying out? food at the presentation? Well, I mean, it was, you know, they had like a nice little snacks mm-hmm. and like it, they made a, a big deal out of it. We had a lovely room and, and we had a big screen and, and it was a, a nice presentation. And just like, what was the genesis of setting it up that way? Um, I think the advisors had had thought they wanted to do it that way. That that family d- just provides amazing client service to to their clients, and they they really like to go above and beyond. And I think they saw that as a way of differentiating themselves. And so, then, how much financial planning activity was was going on? Uh, I mean, like, are you like every month there's a new plan or two? Every week there's a new plan or two? Like how? How much pace was going on through this? Um, I was probably doing probably one one every week or so. Okay. And then there were other things associated with the job, but mo- it was mostly the, the planning. So, uh, so then, what ultimately led to a shift? Your thing is, you'd said you're not there anymore. You you moved on to another firm. So, what what ultimately changed? If this was feeling like a better, more rewarding role for you. 
Um, well, I think that the, the company was, I, I sensed that they were sort of trending in a little bit of a different direction. They were sort of restructuring things with their business. And um, I had known Jason for quite some time. And I knew that he did fee-for-service planning that didn't have any um, sales built into it at all. So it wouldn't require any sales on my part. Um, and so I approached him and talked to him and about potentially working for him. And we kind of went back and forth for a few months. And then eventually I decided to come on board with him. So what was the concern for the the company you were at? I mean, you, you said you sensed they were restructuring, going different directions. Does it mean like they were not, you know, not as into the financial planning and we're going back to lean more heavily in the insurance and investment end or was something else shifting? Um, I think that sort of their, their, the father, the father was, was retiring and there was just, just different, different things going on within the business, um, name changes and things like that. And I just, I, I sense that, um, that, that my role may not be something that would, I would be able to continue to, to develop. Okay. New, new leadership, new priorities have to reassess where we fit with the new leadership and new priorities. And by no means was anyone, you know, pushing me out the door or anything like that. Uh, you know, there was also the, the appeal of the freedom of, right. of being able to, but when, if I'm working um, with objective where I am now, I've always really liked working from home and working my own hours. And I struggle a lot with a great deal of structure. And so that also played a part in it as well is that I'm able to work from home in my new job and that, um, that, that works very well for me. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm struck just by your comment, like, well, like working from home and struggle with a great deal of structure. Um, that feels very not credit union and bank like <laughs> Well, I think to where you spent your earlier career. Yeah, I think, well, um, to be frank with you, I think that, you know, people who have addiction that usually stems from mental health challenges, having no father growing up, my mother dying when I was really young, uh, there was a lot of trauma in my life and being evicted and things um, that has led to challenges with anxiety and depression. And so those are much easier to manage when I'm in an environment where I can dictate my time better. Mm -hmm. and and manage my myself better. So I've had to find a way to work with the challenges that I have that maybe are never going to go away, but mm -hmm. still have the maximum success that I can have because I love this business so much and I believe so strongly in what I do. But I also have to honor the fact that I do have some challenges sometimes and working from home really, really reduces those those challenges for me. So I, I, I guess indirectly reflecting back, like, is that actually part of the point that the the structure, you know, the corporate structure and the rest that go that went with the the credit union and bank environments as well as the 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 management and all the structure that you have to live within to facilitate management was part of the stress that was then amplifying the addiction and making these challenges worse early on because you were in like a highly structured environment when that's not actually your happy place. 
Well, for the longest time, I thought it wasn't my happy place because of my addiction. I had thought that it was just because I was sick all the time from drinking that that's why I didn't like that environment. But I've been sober for almost 19 years now. And I know now that the office environment, sober or not sober, it it doesn't serve me well because... Um, some of the residual things that are left behind from, from, you know, burying my trauma and alcohol for all those years is some depression and anxiety that I have very well under control, but it's certainly um, working from home is, is much easier to manage it. So those things you can, you can see looking back 19 years sober now that wasn't visible at the time. Well, I mean, honestly, I, I, I missed a lot of work time through all those years, too, because of being so sick all the time from all of the drinking. And so, you know, that was always a problem as well. So one, another great benefit of what I'm doing now is I'm paid for the amount of work I do. I'm paid on commission. I take on what I can. So if I'm, you know, having a challenging time, I just don't take on as many clients. And I have decided in this work environment to be completely open with my employer. And he's been amazing. So, so I was actually going to ask in that, in that vein for just the, the history of these uh, challenges that you've navigated through. You know, you've been in, in incredibly candid and open in in the conversation here, but is is this something like? Do you bring this level of openness with employers? I know this can be a really sensitive issue to talk about with employers, and and not all necessarily handle the conversation well. So, how do you navigate this in in an employment context? Are these are these part of your you know, job interviews or perspective discussions with new employers? Does it come up later? Do you prefer not to open the door at all unless it gets opened? Uh, um, how, I, how do you I, handle this? I generally in the past have not opened the door. Um, I think that um, with in, in this particular role, I did. And I'm glad that I did. And it has been helpful. Um, you know, I, I think that it can change people's perception of you because I'm, I can function perfectly well. I just don't want to be in an office five days a week. And if I am, then I, I'm going to struggle. And, and I know that. And so if I'm not in that environment, then generally things go quite well for me. So what, what led you to the decision you wanted to broach that conversation this time, if you haven't necessarily in the past for all, all the very good reasons you explained. Um, a couple of years ago, I was having um, some challenges and I needed to reduce my workload. And I just, um, I, I just decided to be open and, and explain what was happening. And I got great support for that. Okay. So this wasn't something that you had talked to the firm about when you were interviewing or coming in, but it was a conversation you broached when you got to the point of saying, I think I need to dial back my client load to just adjust my work-life balance. And and let me give you a little bit of my backstory as to why. Yes. And, and I mean, if anybody ever wanted to dig back in 2000, my son's a journalist and back in 2015, he asked if he could tell my story for Bell Let's Talk Day. And so my, my story he wrote from his perspective what it was like growing up with an alcoholic mother. Um, and I let him do that. So I actually kind of outed myself in 2015. So if anybody wanted to find out, they could have looked into it themselves. Okay. And so 
And so it sounds like part of the indirect peel of the advisory environment, particularly in a fee-for-service kind of firm where the 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 business is a little bit more contractual, just or, or I guess transactional. Like you, you, you take the clients, you take when you take them, and then you you don't if you need to dial it down. Is it gives you a little bit more of a dial that you can dial the activity up and dial the activity down. Yeah, and I mean to be quite frank with you, I haven't had to do that in in a long time. But I just, you know, I I'm cognizant of the fact that. I, I want to honor my limitations and I just would, if I was to switch jobs again ever, that I would I would not want to work full-time in an office. It would have to be a hybrid type of a situation. So now help us understand the just the advisory firm that you're in today and, and who they are and what they do. So we are a fee-for-service firm and we sell our time and our expertise. So we don't sell any products. We don't sell any insurance products, any investment products. We just sell advice. So people approach us for retirement planning, investment planning. Specifically, I deal with a lot of expatriates and disabled clients and their families. And so expatriates specifically is a bit of a niche. Um, There's not many people who work with them. I work with many clients who live overseas. And when you're overseas, there's a lot of risks with tax reporting. There's a lot of risks with some really poor investment products that get sold out there. And so we're able to work with clients to help them avoid pitfalls and to to really understand, um, you know, how, how to build their own pension. If they're if they're overseas, there's, you know, they're they're not collecting these government pensions that they would in retirement. And so and they're also not building a pension through their employer typically. And so they've really got they're they're in charge of designing their own retirement. Now you you said you you don't do investment products, but you do provide investment planning. So just to like I'm just trying to map this relative to our traditional industry world. So like is investment management and the investment implementation side part of your your model or are you only providing the investment advice here's the things that you should buy or how you should allocate your portfolio but then you have to go do it yourself they do have to implement it themselves but we often will provide introductions so we do have vetted out advisors we do not receive any commissions from any advisors so in some cases advisors will offer our clients reduced fees because to offset what they would have paid us. Um, but really, we, we interview a lot of different advisors out there so we can introduce people to advisors. Really, my job, as I see it, is to educate people on their options. So not everybody needs to be with an advisor. Some people maybe should be with a robo-advisor. Some people should be do-it-yourself. Some people can do, you know, a self-managed ETF portfolio. So the way that I see my job is that I educate my clients on all the different options that are available in the marketplace and how each of them work. They then go off and they make an informed decision because I've now told them all of the options, how they work, the, the pros and cons. They pick a direction and then I work with them to implement that direction. So if someone buys an investment plan, it comes with a year of ongoing service so that they are able to 
look at, so I'm assessing their risk tolerance. I'm giving them commentary on their current portfolio. We're often talking about government benefits, insurance, other things like that. Educating them on the options that are available in the marketplace, talking about structurally things they could do to have their portfolio be more tax efficient and or align with their risk tolerance. And then once they've made their decision as to how they want to move forward, then I'll make introductions or I'll review their ETF choices for appropriateness, but I'm not able to recommend any specific stocks, ETFs, or anything like that. Okay. So so how does this work from a business model perspective? Like what's the firm what does the firm charge for financial plans and investment plans? It ranges quite a bit. I mean, our minimum fee just to do any work with us at all is $1,500. A retirement plan can range anywhere from probably $2,500 to $5,000 or $6,000. Investment planning can run anywhere from a couple of thousand to maybe three or four thousand. So it really depends. And then comprehensive plans, many people will get a retirement and investment plan together, and that'll usually run somewhere between five dollars and $8,000. And so all of these are just like one planning project at a time. It's uh, like there's no assets under management. Is, is there any on, like, ongoing model, pay, a, pay an ongoing retainer to be an, an ongoing client of the firm or – People just come as they need their plans one one plan at a time. We do a great deal of ongoing service. So many of our clients are self-directed investors and many self-directed investors benefit from some oversight because when you're a self-directed investor, you have an emotional attachment to your investments. Even I do myself. And so I have someone else look at my investments every year to, to give a black and white view. And, and so self-directed investors will also often have us on a retainer where they'll pay us a specific amount per year, depending on how much time they want from us, how many meetings they want. And we'll, you know, meet with them a couple of times a year, review their portfolio, talk about any questions they have and be available to them throughout the year. Other people may come back and they'll do you know, full renewal, full new plans each year. And so that the costs really vary for ongoing service. But many of our clients work with us continuously and almost all of them come back periodically. So what's a what would a typical ongoing be for one of these self-directed investors who still wants to come back periodically and, you know, maybe meet, I think it's like meet, review the portfolio, talk about whatever whatever other questions they have. Um, Typically, I'll set it up that I'll do two 30-minute meetings with them throughout the year. And then before those two 30-minute meetings, they'll send me you know, a, a list of questions for that meeting um, or topics they want to cover. And then I'm also available for any other questions. Phone, we'll have phone calls, emails, et cetera, throughout the whole year. And And what would a typical cost be for that that kind of scope of engagement? Um, it could run probably 1500 up to 2500 Okay. Depending on how much, how many times they want to meet, how long the meetings, how much servicing. You know, corporate Be- clients, of course, are more complex. Right. Because ultimately, you, you price this all behind the scenes on like the number of hours it's going to be and hours times rate is project fee or planning fee. 
Yeah, I basically always, I like to work with flat fees versus charging people by the hour. I don't like to, to work that way. So I'll always, in the back of my mind, yes, I'm calculating the hours and providing a proposal. But if I go over a bit, I, I'm, I'm not going to be charging them for that. I try to what? do, I try to do project fees. Unless it's a substantial change and they need a whole redo of a plan, then there could be extra fees, but very rarely. Is there a, a target hourly rate that you try to, to back into for what this is intended to build around? Our hourly rate is 350 Okay. And, and why is it that you prefer to quote the flat fees instead of quoting the, quoting the hourly rate and just billing them for whatever it actually takes? Because then I find people will m limit themselves more and, um, you know, it. I'm sitting there with my watch, whereas I like to just understand what they need and give them a price. And then they say, if that price is too high, then I'll go back and I'll say, how about we take out these things and it's this price? And so I'd rather do it that way so that they're not sort of, I find by the hour it can just... It, we we tend to get not as much done with the project and just bits and pieces. Well, I like I like the way you you frame that point that if you try to understand what they need and say here's what it's going to cost you and give them a price and they say that it's too high, like that can be a good conversation. Since so we can say, well, okay, then what what would you like to take out? Like you know, you, you're biting off a little more than you perhaps meant to chew because here's what it costs to do all the things that you just asked for. So. If that doesn't fit your budget, like I don't have to lose you as a client where you go away. Let's have a conversation about if this is more than you wanted to pay, what can we remove from the scope to bring this down to a project that you're more comfortable with? And exactly. I mean, like, that's a fantastic conversation. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to make sure that my ultimate goal is to make sure that people get value. So sometimes people come back to me and say, Brenda, I think I need to rerun my plan and I'll ask them what changes have taken place and I'll help them to, to, to determine if there's value in redoing the plan right now or if we should wait. And so if I'm honest 100% of the time, I'm going to have my clients coming back all the time. I, if someone doesn't need a rerun of their plan, and it's not going to make a material difference in the outcome, I'm going to tell them that. When I'm struck as well that you just, you've said many of your clients are self-directed investors. And you know, I think the traditional view is almost by definition, do it yourselfers, do it themselves. They don't call advisors. So I guess just help us understand, like, how do you end out with so many do-it-yourselfer clients who were calling do-it-yourselfers, but they're but they're hiring you for advice? I have to think. I think so much of our business comes to us through Jason Heath's articles. So Jason Heath is the owner of the company, and he is a very well-known writer for many of the major publications in Canada. And, and so that brings a lot of, of people through our door for sure. Okay. So he, he does a lot of writing about, I guess, pl planning and investments in consumer publications. And so do-it-yourselfers are the people who tend to read consumer publications. So that's who ends up reaching out because that, that's the audience he's reaching. And I also think that with do-it-yourselfers, I find that when they're getting closer to retirement, they start worrying a little bit more about their portfolio and they might want a second pair of eyes on it. And and so, you know, it's 
to me, all do-it-yourselfers should be having some oversight just because of that emotional connection to the portfolio. And so I that's many of our clients are self-directed investors. And I think that that's a great thing because they really do need sort of a second pair of eyes to look at that portfolio and see if it matches their risk tolerance, if it matches their goals, because so many of self-directed investors, they invest in what they know. So they don't end up with a well-diversified portfolio because they know all about one sector. So that's where they'll target their investing. And so from the business end, it's your consumer publications and and the media side that just that that brings the flow of prospects who are coming in and willing to pay the the fees that you charge for these kinds of uh, I guess functionally like advice only plans like no no insurance no investment implementation we we you just pay us for the advice and we give you the advice yeah we really don't do any marketing it's strictly Jason's articles. Like so, I think he's starting to do a tiny bit of marketing now, but it's pretty much all, and we have a constant flow of prospects coming in. So I've seen a number of firms over the years that do these types of models or start these types of models, but then eventually some subset of clients says, how would you just help me implement this stuff more directly? And 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 some of those firms go from hourly and project fees into also doing the assets under management. I think you said your your firm is focused on building a network of other advisors and 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 refers all that out. So I, I guess I'm just curious, like why why all the like referring out and joint work instead of doing some of this internally, even if you're not marketing it, just like the clients who want more help on implementation. Because you cannot provide unbiased advice if you've got something for sale. It's literally impossible, no matter how honest you are. And so because I have nothing for sale, I've got no skin in the game. And as a result, then I'm educating my clients on good, solid choices available in the marketplace. I accept whatever direction that they go in because they're now educated. As soon as we start selling something, we have lost our objectivity. Or as soon as we take commission from any advisor, we've lost our objectivity. And so... Well, and I guess and you've lived this because you you did live planning and other firms that come from the insurance and investment end. So can you just do you do you actually feel that difference in practice for what you do now versus the planning you did at prior firms? I, I totally support the planning that I did with my previous employer. They're excellent and very ethical advisors. And so everything they did was done with full integrity. But I can see how it would be very easy to manipulate plans towards your sales. So so then how does it work with I guess like joint work with with other advisors? Like who do you who do you refer out to or how do you decide when when and where to make a make a referral out? So if my clients have reviewed the information I provided and they've said, you know what, Brenda, I think I want to work with an advisor, I'll usually introduce them to two or three advisors to start. And so they, and I'll also provide them with, you know, a good list of questions. And I like them to go off and have that meeting on their own because I want to see how the personalities mix. Then they'll usually make a decision about who they're going to work with. Then that person will put together a portfolio and then often we'll have a meeting together to, to look at everything. Um, if they're staying with their existing advisor and just making modifications with the portfolio, then I'm going to look at the changes that 
that advisor makes. So I, my relationship is complimentary. I am not here to be an adversary to anyone's advisor or to knock other people's advisors. I'm really there to very diplomatically, if I see problems, yeah. point them out. But I try to be as harmonious as possible because I don't think anyone's looking for a combative situation. And I think many advisors, you know, they'll, if they've got something for sale, they're going to knock all the things the other person is doing. Whereas I I try to approach it from a little bit of a different direction. So I, but I am struck by that. You said like you may refer them out to an advisor, the advisor, it goes through whatever their process is and puts together a list of recommendations and the client may still come back to you to essentially vet or second look the other advisor's recommendations just to, double, triple check, make sure that you agree with the recommendations that they're making. Yes, the advisors are usually totally on board with that. And so um, what will happen, I mean, especially if it's referrals, because we have um, worked with these advisors in the past and we know them. um, And so they know our process. And so, yeah, we, we sort of look at what the end result of the portfolio is just to be sure it jives with what we've we've discovered and and again that complementary relationship and sometimes clients with advisors still retain us for ongoing services and we meet with them and their advisor annually and so how do you decide who gets onto this referral list of advisors you may be sending opportunities out to well, we interviewed J- Jason looks after a lot of that. So I guess a lot of people approach Jason and then we have many advisors. So we have meetings every two weeks of uh, the certified financial planners at our firm. There's four of us. And so we have a meeting every two weeks and often those meetings are um investment firms visiting us to tell us about their what their product shelf is and so we we sort of vet them all out and we've got a list of of ones that we believe in and and so we'll introduce them to and we'll always introduce them to more than one person so that they can get a feel for a few different personalities and see what works best for them because at the end of the day it doesn't matter to me which one they pick we've vetted these these advisors out and think they do a good job. So I want them to pick who they feel would they would work best with. So I'm 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 struck by this. So in essence, you've got an internal meeting every other week of all the CFPs that for at least some of those meetings, it's an external advisory firm that hopes to get referrals from you that essentially like explains and pitches their services to the whole slate of advisors. So you can all vet them together and you can all decide together whether you, you like them or not or they pass muster. And I guess at, at, you, know, you, you just get to make a connection with them directly. So at least if the firm says this is who we're referring out to, you're, you're not referring out to, to someone blindly like you, you, you met them in the, in the vetting meeting. Well, we, we certainly don't meet new advisors every two weeks. We meet as CFPs every two weeks okay. and um, we meet with, you know, estate lawyers. We meet with cross-border accountants. We meet okay. with immigration attorneys. We meet with all kinds of resources to help us, including investment advisors. And then over the years, we've built up a list of You know, it's not a huge list, um, but a list of advisors that we refer people to and also insurance people as well. Okay. So, um, 
So so the the every other week just it it can be a wider range of anyone you might be referring out to because at the end of the day you you can make a lot of referrals to a lot of different contexts. Or as you said, and, there's legal, there's insurance, there's accounting, there's investment, and any and all of those can be opportunities for for referrals since you're operating on an advice only basis. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of our biweekly meetings are just us talking about best practices and what's going on and, you know, th- those sorts of things, administrative things. We have them for an hour every second Wednesday at four. Do you worry about just, it was like the, the risk or concern that you refer out to an advisor who turns out not to be great at, at what they, at what they do? Like, do you worry about that from a, I don't know, a, a brand risk or reputation risk or a liability risk? I mean, there's always going to be a risk. I mean, they could go and and go to a robo-advisor and have a bad experience. They could have a bad experience with an advisor. So, um, you know, if that's the case, then we try to help them find someone else and try to find a different solution. Uh, But I really put the interviewing on them so that they can find a good personality fit. So I'm not pushing them to pick someone. And in fact, if they want to stay with their own advisor, I'm perfectly happy to work with their existing advisor as well. You don't do any kind of revenue sharing or referral fees or or other arrangements with who you're sending the business out to? No, nothing at all. I'm, I'm paid strictly commission um, on, on the projects that I take on. Okay, so not, not commission in the context of insurance commissions or investment commissions just internal comp for you is you get a a percentage of the planning fees project fees that you do that's the exactly like a portion of my fees the the fee is the commission or however however we would word that a portion of the commission goes to the company um because i've got an assistant and i've got all these, I've got a cross-border tax expert. We've got in-house accountant, in-house a corporate accountant. We've now got estate services. We've got all this support. We've got office space. And so I give a portion of my commissions to the company and plus they feed me clients. And um, and so that I'm paid on commission as a, for, per project. Okay. And so it's not necessarily a like a salaried kind of role it's a you you get you get paid a portion of the advice fees that come in every time you do an advice engagement with a client there's no salary with this role which you know that that can be stressful sometimes as well okay but i guess the flip side is it sounds like they've got uh enough of an ongoing marketing pipeline at this point that the it's transactional business but the ongoing flow of transactional business is somewhat stable and ongoing it's not like one one month there's just no new clients coming in and no one's getting paid on anything no no and i mean i've been here for almost seven years so and it's it's done we've done very well so then part of what you mentioned earlier is that the firm also does white labeled financial plans for other advisors mm-hmm. so help me understand what that offering is so what we do is some advisors will hire us to create plans for their clients. So they'll send us the information for the plan. We'll create the plan with no logos or anything, and they'll put their own logos on it and deliver it themselves. I, I'm thinking of that relative even to the the in-house planning business you did at the at the prior firm. In, in this context, like you're not seeing the client at all though, right? Like you're just getting an info on a piece of paper. 
for exactly. I mean, uh, back when Jason, we hired Jason at my old company. That's what he did. He provided us with a white label plan that I delivered to the clients, and so that's what we do. We create the plan for the advisor. They put their own logo on it. They deliver it because the advisors often want to focus on the client relationship and the investment management and the insurance and all of that getting to understand software and really modeling things properly takes a lot of time to learn how to do it right. And so many advisors recognize that they may make a lot of mistakes by doing their own client retirement plans. And so they'll hire that they'll, they'll hire someone out for their sort of higher net worth clients and they may or may not charge their client for that service. Interesting. And so you, so you don't have any interaction with the client at all. And I'm presuming that means you just, you charge the firm. And then the firm can decide whether they're going to bill the client the same amount or bill the client a holistic planning fee and deduct your costs from it, or if they're just going to absorb the cost. You're, you you build the advisory firm to do a sort of behind the scenes, like pure planning plan construction kind of work. Exactly. And then how they choose, what they choose to do regarding billing, et cetera, is entirely up to them. And And I guess just from a practical, like liability end, like, it's their client and their plan. So at the end of the day, it's up to them to make sure that what's presented in the plan actually fits the client. And but like there wasn't anything lost in translation about the client's circumstances. That's that stays their responsibility. Yes. So is this a? I mean, there's disclaimers on all of our plans. Yeah. Well, because I imagine it's it's it is a little bit difficult at some point to make sure you got all of the details when you've never interacted with the client. Directly. Oh, and if there's a mistake, we're happy to fix it. Sure. And so is this a significant portion of the business? Like, is this a, a big piece of the ongoing planning activity or or just I would comes say periodically? For myself personally, no. Um, I, I think it's a rather small portion of the business um, because a lot of my focus is on expats that sort of Right. takes up a lot of my my time. Um, Andrew Hallam wrote The Millionaire Expat book a number of years ago, and he recommends our firm in his book. And every time a new edition comes out, we get a, a lot of, of prospects. And I've actually started, I'm signed up to do some wellness seminars in some schools overseas coming up. So I think that that part of our business is actually going to grow. Interesting. And so how did you get the the nod in Andrew's book? Um, I think Jason and him met a number of years ago before the book came out. And Andrew really liked what Jason was doing and put his name as a recommendation in his book for, for dealing with expats. And Jason, by the time Jason hired me seven years ago, he was at his limit of clients. And so I've been taking on everyone since then. And so I've been doing almost all of the, the new expat work that, that comes into the firm. And I really enjoy it. Interesting. I guess just because there are so few firms that work on a pure advice-only basis, if you're a, a book writer or a media type looking to refer out to someone in that context, there just aren't a lot of firms to refer out to. So you find when you like, you tend to talk about them a lot. Yeah. I mean, teachers are a huge part of our expat client base. And that's because Andrew Hallam, who wrote that book, was a teacher. And okay. he delivers a lot of presentations in schools. And lately, I'm getting requests to do presentations in schools. And I'm also doing wellness presentations here in, in Ontario as well now. And that's something that I'm really excited about. 
So what I really think literacy, financial literacy is so important and, and really needs to be available to, to everyone. And I think wellness seminars are a great way to sort of introduce that. And so you see your, I guess, like marketing and activity growing further in the direction of doing doing those kinds of wellness financial literacy seminars? Um, it's sort of coming to me. And so I'm starting, I, I think I'm going to see how I've got a couple of them coming up over the next couple of months. And I've done a few. And I'm just going to see if it brings me clients. And, and then if it does, then I'll continue to to do it because there, there, I do have to get some, some business out of it for it to be profitable, although I do charge for the seminars. Um, but ultimately, uh, I'm, I have to sort of gauge how things go with it. But if it does make business sense, it's something I definitely would like to expand. So what surprised you the most about building a career in the advisory business? Um, that I actually, I came into it thinking that it wouldn't be something that I would like at all because although I'm good at math, I've never had a love for numbers. And I absolutely love what I do, even though I don't love numbers. I understand them very well. But what I love is educating and what I love is people. And I love deep conversations and I'm able to have all of that in this career. And and I'm able to really help people feel peace of mind. And and so the surprises were all really good because for so for, for a number of years I kept thinking I'm in the wrong business because I'm not a numbers person. But I came to realize that the fact that I'm a people person and the fact that that I, I really love relationships and helping people is is really what what makes this business so appealing. And and so relative to the discussion at the that we had at the beginning, just uh, do you find there are are challenges in you know the the background that you've had with with money in your own financial journey in working with clients in the industry today? To be honest with you, I have struggled with imposter syndrome quite a bit um, throughout my career because, and I, I feel like I'm over it now, but I really struggled with that for a long time because in the background, I knew where I was, um, especially in the years that I was drinking and working and, and just in, you know, a lot of financial trouble, quite frankly, during those years when I was in so, so sick. And, and just feeling like such an imposter all the time. And so it's taken a lot for me to overcome the, that feeling of being an imposter and, and recognizing what I do bring to the table. And, and my life experiences have so much to offer in terms of financial lessons. I mean, I, I'm a walking lesson in why life insurance is critical to a family so that you don't end up in the streets and, and without the opportunity to be educated. And also on the flip side of that, that when I was a single mom with cancer, I was able to be supported and be okay with a year off of work because I had insurance. And so I just feel like my life in many ways is is a story about financial planning, good and bad. So... What led to the shift that the imposter syndrome eventually went away? Was there a, a like a crystallizing moment that it turned and changed and went away? Certainly when I got sober, it began to diminish. I mean, 
in many ways, I, I believe there was a degree of being an imposter when I was drinking because I was just so sick all the time. Um, but when I got sober, that lingered for a long time. And just because I, to this day, I mean, I'm not a hugely wealthy person and, and I don't really aspire to be that. Um, but I, I think that it's just really coming to terms with what I do bring to the table. And I really do believe that I bring a lot to the table and, and, and that my story actually is beneficial and not detrimental to what I do. I like how you frame that. My story is beneficial, not detrimental to what I do. And it took me so long to understand that because it really is like my empathy, because I've been through so much, it's so easy for me to empathize with other people. Because when someone's been through something, I've probably been through something kind of similar at some point. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Um, I remember sitting on a bench when I was a bank manager at the CIBC and knowing that my drinking was completely out of control and making a decision sitting on the bench that day that I was just going to drink until I died because I just couldn't quit. And um, it's interesting that shortly after that is actually when I did quit. But that was sort of the, 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 I don't know, for some reason that, that always stands out to me as I believe that's when something happened. So what, what changed that you were able to, to quit shortly thereafter? I don't know that anyone can explain why they quit because I tried to quit every Monday forever. And I don't really understand how I finally was successful. I remember because I was having seizures when I would stop drinking, I remember going to the doctor and asking him if he would give me three days worth of Valium so I wouldn't have seizures. I planned the day. I stayed in my bed for three days and had horrible, you know, all the hallucinations and everything. And on the third day, I went to an AA meeting and there was just this woman there and she saved my life. And, um, and, and I guess that that's, um, somehow I, I don't really know what, what, how I ended up stopping, but I think rehab was the beginning of the end. Rehab was the beginning of the, the end of the cycle, like of, Yes. Like I, I, I was unsuccessful both times in rehab. In fact, went to the liquor store on the way home both times, but I couldn't lie to myself anymore because you learn a lot of really good things in rehab and rehab is a really good thing. And although I didn't get sober in rehab, rehab was the stepping stone, I believe that actually helped to finally make it happen. And I feel my son was 13 and he always believed in me. And I feel like he was starting to give up on me. Because your son's early, I guess, early teenage years at this point. He was 13. I was, I was drunk until he was 13. And that's really hard to live with. But I've been sober for more than half of his life. And I remember being so happy when that day came. So as you look back on this journey through the industry now, like anything you know now you wish you could go back and tell you 10, 20 years ago about the like the steps you were taking on the advisor career journey? That even though so much of what I felt 
like I was doing felt disjointed, it actually came together beautifully. And because of the credit union, then the bank, then the insurance, then being a professor at Seneca College, then doing planning, I've kind of got this experience in all of the realms. And it felt like jumping around, but it actually benefited me greatly. Um, because my experience is in all of the areas of planning. My experience is holistic. So I guess in that context, what advice would you give younger, newer advisors looking to start a career today? I think you really have to have a really good plan in place and apply yourself and stick to your plan and join groups and find a mentor. Mentors have probably been the biggest piece of my career. I've been so blessed with wonderful bosses throughout my career who believed in me more than I believed in myself. And if you can find a good mentor who's a good match for you, most people are happy to be a mentor and and sort of guide you along in your process and really try to understand what it is that you want to accomplish. And then fill in the details about how to get there. And and how did you how did you find your mentors? I was lucky enough that my mentors were my bosses, and it started right out of high school with the credit union, where this woman just believed in me so much and promoted me constantly, flew me all over Ontario. I had never given a speech in my life. Um, she sent me afterwards for facilitation training on train the trainer to be a facilitator. And I've just had people who have really believed in me. That family that I worked with were so, so strong and behind me and gave me so much support. Where I am right now is an incredibly supportive environment. I, I've just been blessed with really, really great bosses who have, have been amazing mentors. But I had to really make sure that I went and asked for help. You really have to ask. It's not just going to, to come to you. So how, how do you broach the conversation to ask for help? Because I know for a lot of people like that, that's scary. It shows vulnerability. It shows, quote, weakness uh, uh, sometimes, or at least that's the, the perception. I, I know a lot of folks that really struggle to ask for help, particularly from their boss, because they're trying to look good in front of the boss. And this is where it's important to have clarity of what your final goal is. So what is your end goal? And if your end, and depending on what that end goal is, um, then you want to approach your boss and say, you know, this is where I would like to get to. How do you, what steps do you suggest that I take? And really, you know, look at their expertise and be asking them for their assistance and their support and, and in helping you to understand what path may be the best to get you where you eventually want to be and what changes you may have to make to get there. You have to be open to receiving constructive criticism if you want to move ahead. And a lot of people don't ask because they're too afraid of criticism where criticism is the thing that usually propels you forward if it's delivered in the be- in the right manner. Interesting. So so the the path for you in finding mentors wasn't necessarily just a function of finding the people, it was then actually going to them and saying, "Hey, here's where I want to be with my career. 
what do you think I should be doing? What changes do you think I sh- I need to make? And then actually being ready for them to give you potentially hard feedback about what those things need to be. Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. And and you know, just being open that you're looking for help. People love to be asked for help. People love to be looked up to to you know provide advice and support. So as we come to the end here, you know, this is a podcast about success and. One of the things I've always observed is just the the word success means very different things to different people. And so, you know, to me, you've you've had this incredible career and journey of success through a, lo- a lot of adversity and challenges along the way. But I'm I'm curious how you define success for yourself at this point. Success for me means that I'm able to use my experiences to help other people so that they don't have to feel ashamed of of anything. Um, and success also to me just means that I can feel at peace with myself. Of course, I want to have, you know, financial freedom. Uh, and everyone, I think everyone wants that. But more than anything, I want to just be at peace with myself and the things that I do in my life. Well, I really appreciate your willingness to share your experiences here. And I'm I'm certain they will be some advisors who find solace and inspiration and, and feel helped by what you've shared. So uh, thank you so much for joining us, Brenda, on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.